Hello and welcome to Building Local Power. I am your co-host Reggie Rucker and we are back with episode four for this season where we are highlighting frontline stories in the fight against monopoly power by talking with people from all over the country who are actively engaging in building more equitable, thriving local economies. In the last episode, Shad Dasher and Sarah Cardin illustrated how small and mid-sized farmers across America are going extinct. In this episode, we're moving off land and into the sea, where two fishermen will explain how private equity is driving small fisher folk out of the waters. First, let me pass it over to my co-host, who is never fishy and always has the good drip. If you've seen her vest game, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's Luke Gannon. What's up, Luke? <laughs> you know, this vest has seven massive pockets. I could put my lures, my hooks, my swivels, bait, even a tackle box in this vest. But let's get to the guests that are actual fishermen. I am Luke Gannon, and today, Tim Barrett, a commercial fisherman out of Marshfield, Massachusetts, tells his story. I grew up in a town of Marshfield, Massachusetts. And I fish out of a place called Green Harbor. Growing up, uh, I was three or four blocks away from the harbor. My father moved down to the South Shore after World War II, bought a lot of land and worked for Bell Telephone. Back when there was only one telephone company in the United States, in North America. One of the first things he did was buy a boat, a pleasure boat, and decided to start to spend time on the water. So from there, Green Harbor is a working harbor. We're number two in the state for lobster. There's been, like I say, 400 years of continual, continual fish being, uh, seafood being landed here. And as soon as I was able to ride a bicycle uh, further off than the few blocks that my parents allowed me, sometimes I went over that. Anyhow, I wound up down at the harbor front. and. Uh, the boats, you know, we had a close connection to the ocean here. And uh, the boats, the guys fishing, the working waterfront really appealed to me. That being said, started, we, we started hauling lobster traps after my brother graduated college. And the situation was that actually my cousin is to blame for this, actually. Because he came back from college and said, my brother and he both at the same time, so well, what are you going to do? And my cousin said, well, I'm going to go lobster. And so my brother said, I'm going to go lobster too. And there were times where my parents were like, go down and help your brother. Go out on the boat with your brother and go help. And I said, no, I don't want to go. <laughs> I don't want to be a fisherman. You know, it's smelly. It's a lot of work. I was 10. 11 at the time, but there was, you know, there was a connection to the ocean, there was a connection to the boats, and quite frankly, the people that were involved in the fishery were, you know, the type of people that I found it, it was a lot, of, a lot of fun to hang around with, and, and these, the fisheries are pretty much the most basic form of capitalism there is. You go out, you're a hunter-gatherer, you grab, get stuff, uh, natural resources, and you bring them back in, and you sell them. At the end of the day, you know, I wound up being more interested in the fisheries. Wound up going to college for it at University of Rhode Island. They had a marine fisheries and technology course, which trained you how to do this type of thing. And, and basically, that's how it started. It, it, there, was an ease, there was an ease of operation. I was able to just, I could walk to the harbor in about 20 minutes if I had to. Um, and from, you know, from there, I had an opportunity to spend time at sea and make money at it at the same time. So that's what brought me into the fisheries. I, I, I uh, over the course of a, a number of years, I've, I've tried a lot of different things and, and escaped the fisheries uh, a number of different times, but I've come back to it always. In Marshfield, there's a blessing of the fleet, a lobster festival, and bonfires on the beach. 
There used to be a waterfront festival, where people would show their fresh catch and sell it to the local folk. But over time, many of these community festivities have come and gone. Nonetheless, its geographic location really characterizes the town's activities, most of which are centered, in one way or another, around the harbor. The town, <laughs> it was called the Irish River, Riviera. The Boston Irish, this is where the Boston Irish sat. And this is where they would come down. And in the town, not in my lifetime, but we had a casino. We had bowling alleys. When I was growing up, growing up, there was a theater and two bowling alleys within a short walk from my house. There's two marinas in our harbor. There's a lot of recreational boating that goes out of the harbor. There's still a booming business for lobstering in Marshfield, but the ground fishing industry is in decline. The harbor, as far as the fishing industry goes, the harbor is still number two in the state for lobster production. We have 50 full-time lobster boats in the harbor. A lot of those lobster boats in the wintertime used to go ground fishing. And the lobster fishery still exists to this day. There is a lot of bluefin tuna fishing that goes on in the harbor. As far as groundfish boats go, myself and my brother are the only ones that still exist in the groundfish fishery in Green Harbor. And that's down from 20 boats. During Tim's career, everything from how you buy your boat to procuring a permit to go fish has changed. Over the years, Tim has had to adapt to the ever-changing regulatory system. When I first started, it was as simple as you got a license from the government, be it state and federal, and you went out and fished, and it was as easy as that. It was basically open to any type of fishery that you wanted, be it ground fish, scallops, bluefin tuna, clamming, lobstering. You could get these permits fairly easily. And I've been a boat owner or operator for about 30 years now. You could see the change of regulations coming. And regulations were coming in that was obvious that you had to qualify in order to be a part of the fishery. So it came to a point, and I would say this would be about 30 years ago, that you had to commit, had to have a boat and permits to be a part of the future of the fishery which I did. I bought a boat from a friend of mine that I knew. And that boat at the time was uh, 67 years old. <laughs> it was built in somebody's backyard in New Bedford. It was uh, before cat shares. Cat shares is, is the key word being, this is how the fisheries are managed now. Regulatory wise, things change. We started in what was called days at sea. And days at sea, you were allotted a certain amount of days at sea per permit. Then you could also lease days of the sea from other people, which typically would cost anywhere between $50 and $150 a day. And then that changed into catch shares. Catch shares came out where they issued each permit a quota based on a qualifying period. And you then would be fishing on a quota. And if you didn't have enough quota, then you would be leasing quota from other people. I have to inform the government more than 48 hours in advance, 48 hours is the minimum, that I intend to go fishing. Every single day I go fishing, every single day I go to work, I have an observer, a federal fisheries observer, that comes and monitors comes with me on the boat and makes the trip with me and monitors my tank. They take data, they take and they record discards, they record how much fuel I use, how much I spent on my sandwich for the day, how big my gear is, how much time I use my gear in the water. These regulatory changes have reshaped the scale, no pun intended, at which fishing businesses can operate and they've also transformed the day-to-day -day outings of local fisher folk. Now, my boat is a smaller boat, day boat fishing, 42 feet. Don't stay overnight 
and it's a small scale local fishery. You show up at the harbor, you find the observer. It's usually not hard to find in our small harbor, our local neighborhood. Then I have to then go on to a satellite uplink and inform the federal government that I am leaving the dock. Each vessel participating in the ground fishery has a vessel monitoring system, which is essentially an ankle bracelet for the vessel. The vessel position every hour is recorded. Then we go on the trip. So we'll go out and we'll do our fishing and we'll catch whatever we catch. And then at that point, when I decide to go to leave and go home, I have to inform the government via this system of my intention to land fish. And that essentially allows enforcement enough time to come and maybe, maybe not observe what I unload at the dock. So I'll come in and there'll be local, state, and federal observers, possibly. Sometimes it's nobody. Sometimes it's one, and every once in a while you get a trifecta of every <laughs> of all the enforcement officials there. And I will, I'll wind up unloading my catch, putting it into my truck. Then I discharge the observer, tie the boat up, and then drive my catch to either New Bedford or Boston and sell my catch to the local dealers there. Typically, at the end of the day, I'm around 2,000 pounds of fish. You know, some days have been more, some days, of, you know, maybe too many days have been less. At this point, I then now have to drive my fish to the market, and which will be a wholesale market. People that will then move that fish either whole to another company, or one of my dealers will process some of that fish and move the blade product further down the line. And and that fish, that fish will go locally some, but it will also, you know, I mean Chicago, Philadelphia, the West Coast, Florida is not unheard of. And that's in the ground fishery. So and that's typically the day. And then and then you you, you know you start get gearing up and getting ready for the next trip. Tim's routine stays relatively consistent. But the price that Tim can sell his fish for has had a sharp decline in the last couple of years. For, for the last two years, and especially last year, we have been dealing with 1970s prices. The prices have been like 40 cents, 50 cents, 70 cents a pound. Uh, we've lost a market share. There's been a decrease. There's been a 95% decrease in ground fishing boats on the East Coast. And we have lost the market share for ground fishing which is being substituted by imported fish, imported fish from other countries, imported fish from other parts of the country. There's product come, that would, will come from Alaska or the West Coast, but a majority of the fish consumed in the United States is foreign import. This sharp decline, due in no small part to corporate consolidation, has driven local fisher folk out of the business and is taking a toll on the ones who are just trying to break even. We are responsible for accounting for every single pound of fish that we bring on board our vessel, whether we keep it or not. And we have to account for that and we have to have quota for that at the end of the year. So there's regulatory discards, which if a fish is too small, it has to go back over the side where you are not allowed to keep it. There's also fish that are not viable and there's no market for them. So those fish go over the side. We still have to have quota for that. And then there's also fish that are protected species, which we cannot keep, and those go over the side. So, and that's called discards. And we work very hard to avoid this. We go through a lot of gear modifications. Most people fish in certain areas that they know that they won't have interactions with these fish. We do the best we can. Now, as far as overfishing is concerned, the ground fishery in the United States has never gone over 
their total allowable catch. Now, the total allowable catch is what the government sets forth for what the fisheries are, are allowed to catch. Now, however high or low it may be, within the ground fishery, there's 18 different species that we have to keep track of. We have never gone over the total allowable catch. So the United States fishery is the highest sustainable fishery in the world. And it's also the most regulated fishery in the world. You can't, you can't cover the whole ocean. The ocean is like a, a roadmap on the United States. There's highways, there's interstates, there's side roads, and then there's dirt roads. We never go on the side roads or the dirt roads anymore. Mostly everybody just stays on the interstate because you don't have to go outside it and you don't have to chance wrecking your gear or losing your gear. As Tim has pointed out, the regulatory system has changed Fisher's daily routine. And recently, it has also triggered rapid consolidation in the fishing industry. Catch shares resulted in consolidation. Catch shares has been in effect for 13 years. We warned them that this would happen. And it was designed to greatly reduce the amount of vessels in the fleet. And it has been successful. Catchers came in and there was a qualifying period of where your each individual permit was assigned quota, a certain amount of fish. And that essentially became a tradable commodity. You could lease your fish every year. You would get at the end of the year, you would get that fish back. You could lease it again. And it essentially became rights to the resource, rights to the, the, the fisheries resource. For the first few years, everybody just kind of stuck to their own, and, and, and we all had to form sectors. There's 13 different sectors on the East Coast. I'm the president of Sector 10, and we started with 25 boats. We are now down to two. Most of the people have either gotten out of the fishery, gone on to other fisheries, or have completely left the fisheries. This gave the opportunity for people with investment ability to buy up that quarter. There's no regulations on who can buy this quota. So there's a company, a Danish company, investment firm called Brago, that has bought half of the ground fisheries quota. So we've seen half of the quota for the fleet now in the hands of an investment firm. Not a fishing company, not, not a local company, not a United States company. Tim has now spent much of his life on the waters fishing. And although it hasn't always been easy, Tim has persisted against the odds. But he hopes that consolidation won't hinder the younger fisher folk from entering the industry. You know, as a person that tries to stay within the letter of the law, it takes a toll. It takes a toll. I've been successful, but there's a lot of people that will not participate because of that problem, because of the stress that occurs from trying to navigate their way throughout the system. There's a number of young fishermen, boat owners, who participate in fisheries. A lot of the lobster guys have traded their boats over to their children. And, and those people would have a future. Those people would have a future and have options other than just the one fishery. I think it's important for those people to be part of the community still. That would be part of my, part of my goal. Is I know dozens of people who... I started doing business with when I was young, and now their children own the operations. And not only that, but their, their children's children, their grandchildren are working in the business as well. And let's not forget, this is a business. Fishing is a business. And I would love to see people like that have an opportunity to do that and not have this fishery just age out into nothing. And that's one of the biggest threats that we have right now. Now, before we let Tim go, for all of our water lovers, we had to get a few ocean-specific book recommendations, and he had no shortage. Sea Wolf by Jack London. Captain's Courageous by Rudyard Kipling. Overfishing by Ray Hilborn. Ray Hilborn is a scientist who, who, who does a lot of work. Um, 
uh, in the fisheries and, and explains things like overfishing. And those, those are the books I read over and over again. Moby Dick, I always work through that. You know, you can always open up a page or two of that. What a pleasure it was having you on the show, Tim. Thank you for your story and your expertise. For the second half of this episode, we invited Ryan Bradley of the Mississippi Commercial Fisheries United, who will dive into how private equity is gobbling up the fishing industry. But before that, I'm going to toss it over to the vegetarian of this show who probably hasn't eaten fish in years? Decades? I'm working on expanding my time aperture. Reggie Rocker. So, so, so this is true. I'm aging myself, but you are right on this one. It has in, indeed been decades. So, normally, we take this time during the break to ask for a donation. And even if it's just a small one, $5, $10, really, any amount goes a long way in helping us do the important work of advocating for folks like Tim and the generations after him that we need if we're going to sustain really vibrant local communities and our democracy. And if you can make that donation, please head over to ILSR.org backslash donate and contribute whatever small amount you can. We are truly, truly grateful. But today, I really want to focus on one thing you can do that would cost you nothing. Right now, and I mean that, as soon as I'm done here, pause this episode and share this or another favorite Building Local Power episode with a friend or family member and encourage them to listen. And if you share this with just one person you're close to, and then they share it with one person, and maybe they share it with one person, that's how change happens. That's how we can start changing the minds of citizens and voters, and ultimately the policymakers who we need to create the correct policies so the Thames and Marshfield, Massachusetts, all over the country just have a fair shot again to thrive. And that's all we're asking for is a fair chance instead of privileging these corporate giants. So that's our break. Pause this episode, share it with someone you're close to and encourage them to listen, and then come right back for the interview. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Ryan Bradley, for joining the show today. We are so happy that you are here and to talk about the fishing industry. So I first want to uh, start off this conversation by setting the stage. So a lot of Americans eat fish. In fact, you know, many Americans who don't eat meat still eat fish. But beyond going to our grocery store and buying the Alaskan salmon or the farmed halibut, we don't really know where our fish comes from. Can you start off by telling us what does the fishing industry generally look like in America and where does most people's fish come from? So, you know, uh, seafood's a pretty big deal in America. You know, our, our entire country is surrounded by thousands of miles of coastline and lots of oceans on our east and our west coast and our Gulf Coast. And that presents lots of opportunity for fishing and, and seafood access for America and we have several states that are bigger players than others. The, the biggest ones that come to mind is, like you mentioned, Alaska is, is a major, it's probably the top producing seafood state and a, a wide variety of seafood that they produce, mostly wild, wild caught. Louisiana is the second biggest, as far as I understand. Louisiana has a lot of coastline. They're down here in the Gulf of Mexico. And the, we have the, the mighty Mississippi River dumping nutrient-rich waters into the Gulf of Mexico, which all that nutrients provides a lot of abundance for marine life in the region. So they produce a lot of seafood down in Louisiana. And then all across California to Oregon, throughout the Gulf, and uh, up towards the East Coast, especially in Massachusetts, those areas produce a ton of seafood as well. A lot of that is wild capture historically, it's been a wild capture fisheries. We're seeing this trend, this push from the government, from the U.S. authorities to push this idea of farm raised uh, aquaculture. Seafood is, is a growing trend. The aquaculture has a lot of potential, but it does not produce nowhere near the volume as our wild capture fisheries. The aquaculture tends to be more, more stable, more consistent. But uh, nothing compares with the volume of our wild capture fisheries. That being said, 
American consumers are still consuming far more seafood than what we produce here in America. And so I'll say that to say this is uh, shrimp is the number one consumed seafood item in America. And domestically, we only produce around six to seven percent of all the shrimp consumed in America domestically. So that leaves a large portion of seafood that's imported into America, especially when dealing with shrimp. There's a number of fish that's imported into America. About the only thing that's not imported into America that I'm aware of is oysters. Oysters is uh, really one of the few species that are completely domestic production for a number of different reasons. Actually, I'm going to pick up on this wild capture question versus the aqua farming question. And so you mentioned the wild capture is a more sustainable way, at least compared to sort of land farming, or sort of this wild capture is sustainable. Is, does that sustainability element change when we start thinking about aqua farming? Does, does that calculation change that you're aware of? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that, uh, you know, it's hard for me to, to say that it's less or more sustainable. Specifically, I think that there's a lot more inputs that go into aquaculture, whether it's sea-based farming or land-based farming, the electricity use, the energy use, you know, transiting out to these farms. And then you have to feed all of this stuff, something. And, and so then there's, you know, there's the extraction of the Usually it's the extraction of wild bait fish and whatnot that's processed into fish meal to to feed some of these farms. And so there's some some issues around that. But it's hard to definitively say which is which. Um, but we do know there's a lot more inputs that go into you know, to all of the, the farming. So very similar to to land based you know, agriculture farm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. At the end of your first answer, you were telling us about what the demands are for seafood and how locally, domestically, we're not able to keep up with that demand. And so a lot of this is imported. There's this phrase that I've been hearing on this topic of a, of a seafood deficit. Is that what we're referring to here when we're talking about this supply and demand mismatch? Yeah, Absolutely. The seafood deficit, you know, this first, uh, you know, it's been the issue for quite some time over the last few decades that that deficit has been growing. It really came to light in the last presidential administration and the previous Secretary of Commerce. They had a, a really big push around the seafood deficit. Their solution for the deficit was to expand domestic aquaculture. I don't know that that's the correct avenue to, to go, but it's certainly an option. And so how do we get to this seafood deficit, right? We've got America's completely covered in water besides our northern border. We have all these oceans around us. How do we get to a point where we're, we're seafood deficit? Well, one, Americans love seafood, so we're consuming a lot of seafood. So that's that's one thing. But we're still importing a lot. Well, I'm from Mississippi. I can't speak to every region in the country, but I see it firsthand in Mississippi. We look at the data, who was licensed to commercial fish you know, over a longer period of time. So if we look back 25 years, we'll see in Mississippi that we had over 2,000 commercial shrimp boats operating just in the state of Mississippi. That's how many, you know, we have this license data. This is data that shows us, you know, how many vessels were licensed historically to do this type of fishing. If we look at the numbers today, we have less than 200 shrimping vessels. So we've fallen from 2,000 to 200. But what we've really, when we look into these issues, what we really look at in America's fisheries, our national standards for governing our fisheries, the, the laws, which it goes back to what's called the Magnuson-Stevens Fishery Conservation and Management Act. That's the federal law that governs our national fisheries. And that sets the standards that individual states follow. A lot of times our states mirror the federal standards. But in these standards, they have one of the standards is that they must follow the best available science. And so when we have a lack of science, then things can go kind of sideways. So, Ryan, I was recently reading one of NAMA's reports sort of on the consolidation in the fishing industry. And they made this metaphor about what's happening to the fishing industry 
is what has happened to the agriculture sort of on land industry in America, which is the privatization of it and the consolidation of it, that sort of big companies are just gobbling up land and that is now happening on the ocean. Can you can you explain this? Can you expand on this? What does sort of the privatization of the ocean look like? Sure, absolutely. Every region is different. I'll, I'll open by saying that. But historically, our commercial fishing industry, our seafood industry has been comprised of primarily independent owner operator small businesses. This is your, your mom and pops, your multi-generational families that operate fishing vessels or fishing companies, seafood companies. Some of them are corporations, but small corporations. That that has historically been the makeup of our fisheries. This is, uh, you know, your, your, your great-grandfathers. I'm a fifth-generation fisherman. My, my great-grandfather started out on a, on a vessel, a shrimp in and oyster in. My grandfather got into it and, and on down the line. So uh, that knowledge is passed from generation to generation, and, and that has been how these fisheries operate. So it's never been a really ripe industry for privatization and corporatization, I guess you could say. However, what we've seen over the past 20 years is an explosion in America of a management scheme, a, a policy ideas that are referred to as catch shares. And this is the privatization of our oceans. And the way these catch share programs begin and the way they operate, and they were originally, I think New Zealand had one of the first catch shares and uh, Canada has had some um, before they've taken hold in America. Now we have, I think 17 or 18 different catch share programs around the country now in the United States. But the way these programs start is they come to the, the fishing communities. It may be a fishery that is struggling with its biomass or or struggling in what was called, they used to term the race to fish. And this is back uh, before these, these management schemes come into place. They would essentially, fishermen were, were derby fishermen. They would, they would open a season for a specific species. They, the managers would say, okay, we're going to allow you to catch X amount of pounds of this fish this season. Whoever caught it first, caught it. And they, they were the beneficiaries of that fishery. Well, what that led to is sometimes... That would force these fishermen to get out and, and fish in bad weather. Boats would sink. And then the race to fish, because it's who catches it first, gets that, you know, gets that fish, there would be a glut of the marketplace. So a lot of fish would be hitting the market all at once. This would lead to a devaluation of that fish. And you know, make it very difficult for these seafood markets to push, push that product out to the American consumer uh, all at once. So these catch shares were designed as a way, as a management scheme to address some of those issues, the race to overfish and the safety at sea concerns that, you know, vessels sinking, having to fish during bad weather, that type of thing. Well, that's how it was sold to the, to the American public, to the fishermen. And so they would come into specific fisheries in specific regions and they would say, hey, let's let's talk about these catch share opportunities these let's let's adjust this management scheme to a catch here and what that essentially means is they would look at the historic participation of a given fishery they would look at which fishermen landed which species and they would have an idea okay this fisherman landed so much this fisherman landed so much and they would start to break that down into a percentage and eventually they would issue when they transition to these catch share fishers they would issue shares, also called quota, and it, it's sometimes called individual fishing quota. Sometimes it's called individual transferable quota. There's a few different names that they give it, but essentially it's a share or a percentage of the allowed catch for that species. And so the fishermen that qualified, they had historic catch, and they could prove that they were a historic participant in the fishery. And so from then on, each year, they would get an annual allocation based off their historic catch or the share percentage that they've been issued by the federal government. And so over time, these programs have been eroded. 
They start out for the fishermen. There's a lot of benefits in it. And these quota shares are allowed to be traded in many of these programs. They're allowed to be traded just like shares on the stock market. Anybody can buy them. They can sell them outright or they can lease their, their annual catch to other fishermen. Say your boat breaks down, you can't fish. Well, you can lease that quota out to another fisherman, allow them to catch that quota for you. So there's a lot of a lot of good things that come with that. However, the devil's in the details. And what happens is these programs are originally set up for the fishermen. You have to be a fisherman to access the quota, to receive initial shares. And what we see in, in a number of fisheries, they put sunset provisions in these programs where after so many years, the requirements for them to have substantial participation in these fisheries, for example, you have to have a commercial fishing boat. You need to have a commercial fishing permit to, to maintain these shares. They let those provisions go by the wayside and they fall off. And that, that essentially opens the door for what is being called public participation. And this is where they let anybody in America, that's the law now, is it needs to be anybody in America. And, and we're seeing that even that's being subverted to allow different different entities of different countries come in and buy these shares. But so now anybody in America can buy these shares, regardless if they have any ties to the local communities or any historic participation in the fishery. So here we have a program that was set up that was for local fishermen in a particular region. They were issued shares based on their historic participation. After a number of years went by, almost by design, they allow these provisions that tie that quota or those shares to a community or to a fishery to, to go by the wayside, to fall off. And this opens the door for speculative investment. And so what we've seen is this really explosion of speculative investment investors Wall Street style investors, private equity, a uh, number of different large corporations coming into these fisheries and purchasing these quota shares, owning essentially the right to harvest fish. These catch shares are the right to harvest fish. So they're purchasing these rights to harvest fish and leasing. The, they have no capacity to actually go harvest that fish. They just own it on paper. And then they're turning around and leasing that right back to fishermen who do have the capacity to go and harvest that fish with a vessel and a permit. What we see is these, these really big inefficiencies that are being created in these fisheries. And when I say that, it's really driving the price of fish up for the average consumer. It's driving the price of access to go and harvest that fish for the local fishermen. And a lot of times what we're seeing now in many of these instances in these fisheries that, 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 are, that are operated like this is that the, the investor is pulling more profit than the actual fisherman, substantially more profit than the actual fisherman. And so I'm in the Gulf of Mexico region. I, I actually participate in one of these fisheries. It's the Gulf of Mexico reef fish fisheries, how, how that's referred to. And they have several species that are managed under catch shares. The first that was implemented in the Gulf was red snapper, which is a very popular, controversial species. Then they, several years later, they followed up with a grouper individual quota catch share program, and that covers almost a dozen different species of grouper. And then at the same time, they implemented a tile fish catch share program with three different species of tile fish. And the biggest problem that we're having in these catch shares down here in the Gulf is with the red snapper. Super abundant fish, very well managed fishery. We have no problem catching the fish. The, when you we look at the commercial metrics, the number, the economics of it, I'll give you, I'll give you an example and I'll use simple numbers. It's, it's very close to these, these numbers, but on average, we wholesale that fish for about $6 a pound, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less. We pay to lease that quota. We pay $4 a pound. So we have a gross margin of $2 to the vessel that's actually catching the fish when we have an investor that's making $4 a pound. That investor never has to get on the boat, never has to get on the water, never has to touch a fish, and he's extracting the lion's share of the proceeds of that fish 
to that. So that creates a huge inefficiency that drives the price of the fish up and creates very slim margins for the actual fishermen. And so we see this trend all around the country. We see this happening in, in a number of different regions, the same things repeated over and over. They come in with good intentions, say, hey, let's let's do this. This will be good for the fishermen. This will be good for the fish. And then it's almost like they get hijacked. These, these fishery models get hijacked or subverted, arguably uh, intentionally or not. It, it appears to be almost by design. Now, when I talk about who is they, who is they? Well, what we've seen, the major proponents of these catch share programs have been led by the Environmental Defense Fund, often referred to as EDF, Environmental Defense Fund, which is a very huge global environmental nonprofit. And so then you start to look deeper and you ask, well, who, you know, the, this EDF, uh, they, they would funnel money to fishermen to lobby for these programs. They would lobby Congress. They would lobby the regional management councils for a particular region to, to advocate for the implementation of these programs. But then we start to look at, well, who's funding EDF? Where are they getting their money from? And the biggest beneficiary that we've seen for these catch share programs is the Walton Family Foundation, Walmart. Mm, wow. And so then we look deeper. We'll say, well, who is comprised of the Walton Family Foundation? And you start to look at their board of directors. It's primarily Wall Street bankers. Okay. Wow. 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 Okay. So you've laid this out perfectly. And we've actually, we've done some research and writing in the past on this really unholy alliance between the EDF, Walmart, and the Waltons. We're going to put some of these links up on our website on the show notes for this episode. You absolutely have to go check this out if you're interested in learning more about this topic. So... You've done a great job, Ryan, of laying out sort of where we were 20, 30, 40 years ago and how we got to where we are today. The big question that we sort of want to pivot to now is like, what do we do, right? I mean, we earlier we heard the story of Tim Barrett and he's you know talking about there and you, you laid it out here too. There's just very few small fisher folks that are hanging on. There are are fewer people in the next generation as they're thinking about, do they want to get into this business? Like there's not that generational turnover. So what do we do? One, is this a problem worth solving? I think it is, but, and then two, like, yeah, how do we do it? How do we go about solving this problem at this point? Yeah, right on. G great question. And so uh, these catch share programs, which are sold as, you know, all this wonderful tool for the fish, for the fishermen, we can work to reform those. And so there is efforts underway currently to reform the nation's catch share fishery policy. And myself is a part of that effort. We've been working very closely with NAMA, the North America Marine Alliance on this issue, and been building a coalition of like-minded fishermen from all around the country that are dealing with similar issues. And we have come together and we are proposing solutions, legislative changes that we can pitch to Congress to fix some of these issues. And the fix is really simple. It includes prioritizing actual commercial fishermen. So these catch share programs are, are, are authorized by Congress and they fall under what is called what Congress defines as limited access privilege programs. So all of these catch share programs fall under limited access privilege programs, which is a great term. And unfortunately, these catch shares really, the only way they're limiting access is by how much money you have to buy into them. It's created this buy-in fishery that we hear this, this phrase used by a lot of folks that are in these fisheries. It's now a buy-in fishery. So it's no longer, do you have a history in commercial fishing? Do you have a tie to the local region? Are you a resident of a local community that engages in the harvest of these fish? It's now how much money do you have to buy the rights to these fish? And, and to me, that, that's ethically wrong. It's morally wrong, unacceptable. And so what we're going to ask Congress to do is to limit access to bona fide actual commercial fishermen. And that will solve a lot of the problems that we're seeing because what's happening is by allowing anybody to come into these fisheries and, and purchase 
access to harvest these these different species it's created a speculative bubble similar to what we've seen in the housing market years ago it's driving the price of these quota that the fishermen have to have through the roof to where it's unattainable it's not sustainable for these fishermen and it's not profitable for them and so what you have in these programs is consolidation you have big players, the big private equity, they're coming in, uh, buying up as much as they can, consolidating permits and quotas and and all of this and reducing the number of opportunities available for local small-scale independent operator fishermen. And so by putting these access rights or prioritizing those rights into the hands of actual fishermen, then we start to halt that trend and start shifting it back to local communities that it's been hijacked from. So I want to build off Reggie's question a little bit, but look at it in a more personalized light. So Ryan, what what is your hope for the fishing industry in 20, 50 years? What does it look like at the at the sea level? Many of these fishers are in survival mode. Some are doing better than others. But uh, one is just, can we hang on? You know, another issue I didn't mention is climate change. You hear a lot of talk about climate change and how is that impacting fisheries? One fish move around, they swim, they migrate to to different areas. Two, we're seeing, you know, stronger hurricanes, more, you know, uh, could be tornado activity. In my region, in the Gulf, we've had issues in recent years with freshwater flooding. So water coming down from the Mississippi River, getting diverted into our local fisheries, creating havoc and causing severe damage to our local fisheries. And so there's just a a plethora of of problems that we face. So I would say that, uh, one, we're in survival mode. But some of this can be addressed, you know, like I said, with uh, the policy side, we got to make sure that we're supporting our actual fishermen and that their access to fisheries is not being hijacked and subverted first off, because I think that's unsustainable. I think that we're seeing fishermen drop out of these programs that, you know, there's only so long you can participate in these programs on very slim margins. And so I think we can, we can, we can work through policy to make, make it more profitable to keep fishermen in. And as we lose these people, we lose the next generation of fishermen. And, you know, same thing that our farmers are dealing with. And this is called that the, in the fisheries where they call it the aging of the fleet or the graying of the fleet. And uh, what we're seeing very similar to America's farmers is the average age of the fishermen and farmers getting older and older. Each year, we have less people coming into these fisheries. So first off, we got to make it profitable because as a young person that's looking at potential job opportunities, potential careers in commercial fishing, they're looking at, for example, these catch share fisheries and they say, well, these private equity guys have, have bought up all the, the rights. There's really no upward mobility in these fisheries for me to go out and buy a boat, work my way up. You start out in the, in, the, in this industry on the back deck as a crew member. You you get experience over a few years as a crew. Eventually, you save up enough money to go out and purchase your own boat, your own permits, and you build in to that, and you create a lasting business that you can transfer to your children. And what we see with these catch share programs the the whole access to the quota and all that's an essential part of the operation is being taken away from these people where they can't access it. It's not affordable for them to access it. It doesn't make sense. And so therefore these young people that may have wanted to follow in their father's footsteps or their grandfather's footsteps says, no, there's no way for me to grow in this into an ownership position in this industry. So I'm going to go do something else. So, uh, we can fix that through policy. So that that's a that's a main thing there. You know, other than that, just so supporting America fisheries, consumers can anytime you go and eat seafood, demand American seafood. Ask. If you go to a restaurant, ask where did the seafood come from? Support restaurants or establishments that are committed to serving only American. So, you know, that's a big deal. Uh, The more imported seafood we eat, that means those dollars are getting shipped overseas as well. And we're not having the the economic impact we would if those dollars were staying here in America. So those are all things that I would like to see. Um, Hopefully, 
you know, some of these policies can get implemented. And in the next 20 to 50 years, we start to see a rebound, a resurgence of American fishers. That's great. And then the last thing we want to do before we let you go is we're building out a book library where we have our guests who come on share with us something that they've read that's really impacted the way they think about their work or sort of yeah, approach the work that they do. So is there is there a book that comes to mind for you that's really influenced the way that you like I said, think about your work and, and, and think about the industry and the communities that you support? Yeah, absolutely. So a couple that come to mind that I would recommend folks look into is one is the is called The Fish Market. And that is the author is Lee Vandervoot. And it really dives in deeply to a lot of these things that I've discussed today about the catch shares and how these environmental groups have come into this space with help from Walton Family Foundation and gets into the fight over our dinner plate. And, and that's and that's what we're we're up against now. So I would definitely recommend folks look into that. Uh, that's The Fish Market with Lee Vandervoo. And then there's another author that I really like that's less known. His name is Robert Fritchie. Robert Fritchie. And he's wrote a couple of different books. One is called Missing Redfish. Another one is A Different Breed of Cat. And he's got several others out there. Wow, those are those are great recommendations. This was just incredibly informative, Ryan. Thank you so much for giving us your time today. I learned a lot, <laughs> like a lot. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. Well, thank you so much, Ryan, for this thoughtful conversation and for joining us on the show today. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of Building Local Power. You can find links to everything discussed today by going to ilsr.org and clicking on the show page for this episode. That is ilsr.org. If you like this podcast, like I said at the break, please share with your family, your friends, people you're close to, people you're not close to. Just share it. And remember, all of your reviews, likes, and donations help produce this podcast and support the research and resources that we make available on our website. This show is produced by Luke Gannon and me, Reggie Rucker. This podcast is edited by Drew Birschbach and Luke Gannon. Our theme music for the season is composed by ILSR's communications manager, Andrew Frank. Thank you for listening to Building Local Power.